0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll join me in your Bibles in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, and this evening we will be looking at verses 16 and 17. A recent Gallup poll found that 82% of non-Christian Americans believe that the statement, God helps those who help themselves, is found in the Bible. And those are non-Christians, so we shouldn't expect otherwise. They don't read the Bible, they don't understand grace, so that sort of makes sense to them. You do your part God will do his. So that's not very shocking, but when Christians, self-professing Christians, were asked the same question, 81% of them also believed the quote that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. That's 1% less than non-Christians. Professors of Christ that think God helps those who help themselves. Another way I have heard people say it is, I need to do my part and God will help me. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that might not be in the Bible, but really, what's wrong with the statement? Isn't it true? Well, actually, it's the exact opposite of what the gospel truly is. It's a complete and total misunderstanding of what grace actually is. A lot of people think about grace and think it's a word that just means love. But love and grace are different. Grace includes love, but you can show love or receive love without grace. We're not saved by love. We're saved by grace through faith. There's a big difference. Love as an action is someone doing something good to us or for us. If you love me, you're going to show me that you love me in the way that you treat me, in the way that you serve for my benefit, in the way that you talk about me, and vice versa. But you see, grace goes well beyond that. Grace says there's nothing about you that deserves this good, but I'm going to do it anyway. Grace is love shown to someone who deserves the opposite. It's not an experience of love that transforms you. It's the experience of sovereign grace. In fact, to really understand grace is to understand that it's not just that you are shown love that you don't deserve. It's, it's when you are shown love that you don't deserve, even though you actually deserve the opposite. I may have told the story before from Les Miserables by Victor Hugo about the main character, a man by the name of Jean Valjean. This is a perfect example of what we mean when we speak of grace. So if I've told you, bear with me as I remind us all, Jean Valjean was a man who was originally put in prison over an injustice, and so he was wrongly imprisoned, but eventually he becomes an actual criminal because he's so embittered in his heart by the abuses that he received and by the biases and the opposition and the bigotry and the injustice of life. And so he develops into a criminal, And his attitude becomes, everybody else has hurt me, everybody has misused me, so I will hurt them and misuse them. Well, Jean Valjean is released from prison, and as an ex-convict, he's taken in to live in the home of a bishop. The bishop brings him into his home out of the goodness of his heart and when the bishop's back is turned Jean Valjean steals the silver cutlery from the bishop's dining room and runs out through the garden. Well the, peach, the, the police catch him and they find this beggarly looking man with all this extremely valuable silver. They immediately know that it's the bishop's silver and they bring him back to the bishop and all it will take is one word from the bishop and Jean Valjean will be back in prison. But instead, what does the bishop say? He looks at Valjean and he says, Well, of course I gave him the silver, but my dear friend, I gave you the candlesticks too. Why didn't you take them here? And then he looks at him and he says, now go in peace. I want you to know that you are always welcome here. Well, this is the bishop doing good to someone who deserved the complete opposite. This is grace. It's a perfect example. It's not just that he doesn't owe Jean Beljon, but he owes him punishment. Instead, he gives him grace. And as a result... Grace, we see, is very expensive to the giver. Look at what he lost. Number, and, and secondly, it's, it's completely shocking. It's completely unpredictable that this would be the outcome. Now, here's the thing you may not understand. Grace is always humbling. That's the reason why Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing." It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. If you have received the grace of God, it has humbled you to the dust. It has radically changed your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, If a man delights in free grace, you can be sure he is a man who has seen his utter sinfulness and hopelessness and helplessness. So you see, a person who has really understood that, that God has not just given you love, but completely undeserved love at an incredible cost to himself, for you to receive grace means you will have a completely different life, not just a cleaned up, better version of who you were, but a completely new life as a completely new creation. And so as we continue in our Lord's Supper series on Christian assurance, I really want us to focus on what God has really actually done in the gospel because we just have a difficult time grasping the reality of it. As simple as it may sound, in theory we might get it, in conversation we might be able to talk about it, In concept, we might be able to theologize about it, but when it actually comes to believing the gospel and applying the gospel to our lives, we really struggle to see it play out because it really is so unbelievable. And as I've thought more and more about what keeps us from having real, lasting, deep assurance in our standing with Christ... As I've talked to many, many Christians who have struggled with assurance, this is at the heart of what is going on. We really struggle to believe the gospel. And I understand why, because grace is shocking to us because we just have this really hard time accepting the fact that we're receiving something we didn't earn, we're receiving something we don't deserve, we're receiving something that is exactly the opposite of what we should receive. And this is why it's so tempting to think, well, I must have to sleep on a bed of nails, or walk on hot coals, or whip myself, or take a vow of poverty or live in silence I have to be able to prove that I actually deserve this I have to show that I'm actually worth this and so if I can do that then maybe I can finally be sure that I'm saved and yet the Bible is constantly saying no that's not how it works if you're a Christian it's not because of you If it was because of you, you'd have something to boast about, but it's not because of you, so the only thing that it can do is stop your mouth. You have nothing to say about yourself. And this is something that is so offensive to so many people about the gospel. To come to a place where we are receiving God's gift of grace, we have to be able to say yes I need this. I need something I don't deserve, which is the exact opposite of what I deserve. And so people run from that because in our sinful nature, we are so filled with pride and self-assurance and self-righteousness and think that we should be thought of a little bit more highly than grace allows if you think it's beneath you to admit you're so sinful that only the death of the Son of God could save you, if you think that's demeaning or you think that's primitive, if you think that's, that's so underneath all of your intellectual objections, that's a heart that's saying, I can pay my own way. Who are you to say that this is true for me? And the Bible says, sorry, salvation is all of grace." It is not from you or by you. It is a gift from God, not because of anything you've done, but solely and completely by grace alone. So you have nothing to say. You've contributed nothing. And by the way, it cost God the Father, his son, that he might give it to you. So I've said a lot, but let's look at the text and get this, because I'm convinced that if Christians really understand believe and articulate the gospel to themselves every single day, we will not have nearly the struggle we do with sin in our lives and as a result with our assurance. And I really hope today that you will think about this question. If you don't have a 30-second elevator pitch for the question, what is the gospel, you need one. Because you need it more than anything not just to tell other people but to tell yourself to remind yourself this is the gospel this is what I believe this is who I am and who God is and what Christ has done that I might have salvation you need to preach it to yourself when you're struggling so that you can hang on or when you're tempted to fight for God's approval when your life is turned upside down when you think God is against you what are you going to preach to yourself you need need to be able to say, the gospel is, and then fill in the blank. It sounds easy, but what would you say? Hopefully, you will consider that. So, what is the gospel? Let's read Romans 5, beginning verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, in our text, we're obviously entering into the middle of the Apostle Paul's, uh, here, his comparison between the sin of Adam and what that sin did to all of mankind, and the righteousness of Christ, and what that has secured for all mankind. And and so we have the overall premise that Adam was the first man, and he failed at fulfilling what God gave him to do. And as a result, all of creation fell. And then we see the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled what the first Adam did not, and what what he could not, and what we could not. And so, as the argument progresses, Paul is showing how Adam and Christ are not alike. Now, Paul's going to be discussing a free gift, and toward the end of verse 17, we see the free gift he's talking about is righteousness. You see that. He writes, the free gift of righteousness, and it's on that gift that Christian hope is built. It's on the righteousness of Christ that we stand justified, heaven-bound believers. And so that's where he's going here. So where do we gain assurance from Paul's argument here? Well, first, he shows us that the grace of God is far more powerful than all of your sin. That is very good news. Paul writes again, the free gift of righteousness is not like the result of that one man's sin. So to be clear, he's referring back to Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind and Adam's eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's saying the gift of righteousness that is received by faith in Christ does not result in the judgment that is received by our being born in Adam. You and I and everyone, ever born at the end of our lives is either in Adam or in Christ. Those are the only two options. And we are all born in Adam, every single one of us. We come into this world as sons and daughters of Adam, and by God's grace through faith, it is then that the many will be brought to be in Christ. But all of us are in Adam initially, and and this is by one sin. All of creation fell because of the sin of Adam and are born into a state of sin and misery. And Paul emphasizes that, and he says, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's Adam's sin, but he's saying the free gift is not like that. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So, I hope you see the contrast. The words are very important here. One transgression of Adam led to condemnation. Many transgressions, in other words, all of our sin, all of the collective sin of all of God's people, when we're in Christ, leads to justification. So, what is he saying? He's saying that the grace of God is far more powerful than your sin. He's saying, look... Adam sinned once, and that was enough for all of creation to fall. However, you and you and you and you, all of God's people, you all sin over and over and over again, and the grace of God is greater than that because by the grace of God in Christ you are justified. Condemnation is a natural and fitting response to sin, and yet in the gospel we see the exact opposite. Remember, it would have been right and just for the bishop to turn in Jean Valjean. He was under no obligation to do what he did, but grace was on his agenda. And that's the thing about the gospel. Justification is not the natural fitting response to our sin. It's not fitting to one sin, let alone all of my sin. And there's a lot of it. And and so Paul's emphasizing the fact that grace has to overcome the reality that a single transgression calls for condemnation. And so many transgressions call for everlasting condemnation. Grace has to overcome that. And not just in one person's life, but in all of the lives of all of God's people. And the thing that really highlights the power and significance of grace is that it overcomes this obstacle. How? By a substitute being provided, an alien righteousness, something outside of ourself, a right standing before God that was not ours but was given to us, it was credited to us, it was, theologically speaking, imputed to us. Christ was righteous for us, and so so now God can justify us despite our many transgressions. And this is one way we can be strengthened in our assurance. It's Paul's intent to encourage us here. Here's the most simple terminology for what Paul is saying. Your sin is great, but the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is greater. Remind yourself of that. Write it down. Tape it on your mirror. Look at that every single day. The free gift of righteousness that Christ provides for all who trust in him is big enough and powerful enough and sufficient enough to overcome not just one sin, but all of your transgressions. God justifies us by a free gift. What does free mean? It means you didn't earn it, you didn't pay for it, And as a result of that, you certainly don't deserve it, but it's yours as a result of being justified. That's the gift of Christ's righteousness that is far greater than all your many transgressions. Now, perhaps it may seem minor at first, but it's incredibly important that we understand what the free gift is. And notice, I've already mentioned it, the free gift is what? Righteousness. And the free gift of righteousness results in justification. So, let me try to put the pieces together here. The free gift came because there were many trespasses, and the free gift, which is the righteousness of Christ, is credited to you so that you can be justified. It's not just a new relationship with God. It's a completely new legal standing on the basis of what Christ did for you in obedience to the law and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And here is why that is so important. I believe the number one most significant and prevalent of theological errors that exist today is the confusion between justification and sanctification, I have many, many conversations with Christians who confuse the two, and I believe one of the most significant ways we find ourselves lacking in our assurance is because of this error. I was recently having a discussion with a friend about a church sign that they saw. Don't put church signs out. They're usually terrible, unless it's just the name of the church. They saw it, they took a picture of it, they sent it to me, and here's what the sign said. Belief in God will not earn you a spot in heaven, obedience will. Now on the surface, without much thought, maybe that sounds not so bad. Maybe it sounds they're, they're simply emphasizing the fact that, they're, that y- y- your belief isn't enough. You actually have to show that you believe with your life in Christ. And let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say maybe that's what they meant. But again, listen to it. Belief in God will not earn you a spot in heaven. Obedience will. What is being communicated? It's saying that your obedience will earn you a spot in heaven your obedience. That is not the gospel. That's a denial of the gospel. The gospel says Christ's obedience will earn you a spot in heaven. It's not anything you've done. It's not any way that you've done it. You're not good enough or smart enough or good-looking enough or rich enough or poor enough or faithful enough or sick or healthy enough. You're not enough to earn a spot in heaven. You are dead in trespasses and sins and you have many transgressions and if not for the overwhelmingly powerful sovereign grace of God, you will not be justified. But the free gift of the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us makes us justifiable. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are not called to earn anything. And so when you fall again, When you sin again, when you lash out in anger towards your children or your spouse again, when you do something that brings guilt or shame because you know it's a sin and it doesn't glorify God, your first thought doesn't have to be, I wonder if I'm a Christian. Am I really a Christian? I can't be a Christian. I wouldn't do this if I were a Christian. No, instead, your first thought should be, thank God I'm a Christian. Because I'm broken and I'm sinful, but the grace of God is far greater than all of my transgressions. And so I am forgiven and freed up to now go be reconciled to those people I've sinned against because I've already been reconciled to God by the, wor- the, the life, work, and death and resurrection of Jesus. There's a huge difference. What are you preaching to yourself? Is it that the grace of God is far greater and more significant than all of your sin. Listen, when you read the Gospels and you see the life of the Lord Jesus being lived out in perfect righteousness, don't just settle in looking at him and saying, well, he's showing us an example of how to live. Now, of course, that's not entirely inaccurate, but it's very incomplete. Jesus isn't just giving you an example to look to. No, he's laying the very foundation for your acceptance. He's securing the free gift that he can credit to you that by the grace of God, through faith alone, you can be justified. So in that regard, if you're lacking in assurance, you're really asking, was Jesus really enough? Was all that he did and the way that he did it, was that really enough you know, sometimes we think a lack of assurance is, is sort of this kind of humility, that I'm just, I'm just being humble by saying, I'm so, I'm so wretched, I'm so low, I'm so poor in spirit, I, there's no way the Lord could save me or would ever want anything to do with me. That's not humble. Because what are we saying? We're saying Jesus' life and death wasn't enough. All that he did and the way that he did it It was good for others, but it wasn't good enough for me. Does that honor God? And so, brothers and sisters, we can have assurance because God's grace is far, far, far greater than all of our transgressions. And secondly, Paul shows us that death no longer reigns because of the righteousness that Christ provides You see in verse 17, Paul says, by that one man, by Adam's sin, by his transgression, death reigned. Death had dominion. Death had all the power. And you and I both know that the people of the world live in that reality, right? Everyone is scared out of their minds about death. You ever think about that? Everyone out there trying to live on forever and yet they know full well that they won't. Death reigns for those who remain in Adam, and it's a fearful place for a person to be. It's one of the reasons even Christians rebel when we encounter death, because it's not what we're designed for. We, we know inherently that we weren't created in order to die, and yet physically, we do, we die. Death is real, and in a fallen world, it's what happens. But even when we come face to face with the reality of death, we still never really think about the fact that it will soon be us. But it will. And from time to time, we get a glimpse of that. We heard that in one of the testimonies this morning. It had this powerful effect. Death did to remind our brother of his shortness of life and his need for acceptance before God. One day it will be us. And there's yet still something deep inside the human nature that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you know why? It's because that's true. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Nevertheless, that trespass resulted in death. And worse than that, shut out from the presence of God. But by another act, an act of immeasurable Grace, a gift of grace, this gift that followed many trespasses brought justification. You and I, men and women, may stand before God and be declared just, even though we're not, because someone else bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He absorbed the penalty, he absorbed the guilt, and as a result, we may be justified. And what's the result? Notice, it's not that death no longer reigns, but life does. That's the good news in and of itself, but it's, it's not good enough for God. God is full of grace, full of mercy, full of love, full of goodness and kindness toward his people. It's not enough that we simply not have to endure everlasting death and can instead have everlasting life. No, what does Paul write? Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, okay? But for those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So it's not that death no longer rules, but life does, not he, he says that, that someday, through Jesus Christ, we will move from being ruled by death to becoming rulers ourselves in life. And so you see, we have an inheritance that we're looking forward to, and that inheritance is not just life, it's the whole world. You and I, who are in Christ, we will be made monarchs in the age to come. It's all ours. It's all ours ours. And that frees us from a mindset of thinking we have to earn and gain and take and hoard and have all that we can, all that we can gain and have and take this in this life. It should give us hope and we can have assurance In all of this, because we're reminded once again that it all comes from the hand of God and if God is so willing to give such amazing gifts to his his children that we would inherit the world, surely he's not going to let you go. Surely you are his now and forevermore if you are in Christ. It's a reminder of the fact that we don't need to, to try to have it all in this life. We need to give ourselves over to simply trusting that Christ's righteousness has been credited to our accounts, and so I don't need to to try and turn it into something that I'm going to do. I need to rest and have assurance, knowing that it is enough. We can build all of our hope and trust and assurance on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. You see, so often we try to motivate ourselves to obedience and we do it negatively by saying, maybe you look in the mirror and you think, you're a terrible sinner. You need to try harder. You need to do better or else you're always going to be a terrible, awful person. But what does God say in His Word? Essentially, His Word says, yes, you are a terrible, awful sinner, and so for that reason, I have given you a super abundance of grace, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will reign forever in Him. And friend, if you don't know Christ tonight, that is true for you as well. Yes, you are a terrible, awful sinner, but God the Father sent God the Son into this world to live the life of a perfection that you cannot live, fulfilling the law of God completely. He died on a cross, taking upon himself the full weight of the wrath of God for all who will trust in him. And by faith, trusting in him that he was slain for our transgressions and that he was raised from the dead to new life to conquer sin and death forever. By faith alone, you can have everlasting life with him. And you, with all of God's people, can inherit the earth. And so, will you trust in the Lord Jesus? Will you put your faith in Him? Will you find all of your hope in Him? You see, there's nothing about the gospel that's about us doing and earning and gaining. It's all about Christ working and dying and raising, and living, and reigning, and ruling, and us getting to join Him in all of that. And so you see, if you're struggling with assurance, because you're just a vile person, you actually understand what you are in your natural state. And at the heart of it all, if I'm honest with myself and, and really evaluate the things I think about and the way that I think about them and the way that I deceive and respond in pride and, and impatience and use harsh words that cut or, or get involved in gossip and lie and whatever it is that I do, yes, yes, you're right, I'm, a, I'm far worse than anyone thinks I am. But you know what? Jesus said he didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. And so my assurance rests in the fact that I know that I know that I'm a sinner. And so I can know that Jesus came for people like me. And I know that his grace is so powerful that it covers all of my transgressions. And because of that, I need not fear death. Because Christ has provided a righteousness that I am given as a gift to stand in. Are you preaching that to yourself every day? That was a little longer than the 30-second elevator pitch, but ask yourself that. Ask one another that question. What is the gospel? And I want you to help one another answer that. If we're going to have assurance, we need to know the answer. And part of the answer is to, that, to that question is that you receive a free gift to cover all of your many transgressions in Jesus Christ. That's where your assurance lies, brothers and sisters, on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we truly do rejoice in the gospel of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we could not live, who died the death that we deserve, who was buried and raised again, and for your superabundance of grace that has come into our lives that by faith alone, as we trust in him and all that he's accomplished, that we might stand upon his righteousness and not our own, that we not have to seek to earn or to work, but that we can simply rest in Christ. And in so doing, we not only inherit everlasting life, but we inherit the world. We thank you, dear God, for your blessing upon us as your children, undeserving as we are, As vile and wretched as our sin may be, we acknowledge, O God, that your grace is far, far greater. Thanks be to God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.